It's good to be with you guys. I've missed y'all, been out for a couple of weeks for some vacation, but I am so glad to be back. If you're new or visiting, my name's Tyler. I'm the downtown, did I get a clap for being back? That's awesome. Um, no, no, no. The text we're reading is gonna make you feel bad about that, okay? Um, it's about leaders. <laughs> 1 Corinthians 1. If you're new or visiting, my name's Tyler. I normally don't ask for applause. It's just my first day back. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And I wanna wish happy Father's Day to you. Fathers in the room, we're so thankful for you. It's a great, it's a great blessing to have a good father. And I also wanna say, I know for a lot of you, Father's Day is a mixture of things and maybe even a painful thing because of loss in your life and hurt in your life and wounds in your life. Let me just say, today is a reminder that even the best fathers are a shadow of what our father is like. And God, our father, is nothing like the most broken fathers in this world. So the thing for you to celebrate, to take solace with is no matter how wrong your father may have treated you, that's not what our father is like. And I know it's slow to learn, it's hard to learn that because fathers are so important and just like mothers and bringing us up, but it's harder when God is called our father. And so pulling those things apart can be difficult. Just know God has patience with you and love for you as he's teaching you along the way. Uh, we're gonna be in 1 Corinthians chapter one. So uh, in two weeks, we start our new book that we're gonna go through verse by verse it is the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew. I'm really, really excited about that. Um, I don't know how long we'll be in it. Let me just do a little equation for you. First Peter, it's five chapters, took a year and a half. Matthew is 28, so we'll be there for 800 years. I don't know, I don't know how long it's gonna take. I really don't, but it'll be great because it's the Bible. Um, but we actually plan some flexibility between Jonah and Matthew just for us to hit a couple of just topical things and, um, that each of campus and leadership wanted to, to spend time on. So last week, Jeff Mangum, he had a sermon on comparison and contentment. It was phenomenal. I'd recommend going back and listening to it. This week, we're gonna be in 1 Corinthians 1 and potentially next week, depending on how much we cover today. Because I, I, I love the, the book of 1 Corinthians, the letter of 1 Corinthians, because it just really shows what does it mean for a people like us, a church like us, to follow Jesus together. Like in the letter of 1 Corinthians, Paul addresses lofty theology and very practical issues. He covers a lot of ground in this letter, and most of the questions you and I have about it, what does it mean for the church to follow Jesus, a lot of them are answered in this letter, whether it's our understanding of the Holy Spirit or men and women in the church or sexuality or legal actions between believers or marriage and singleness and on and on I could go about all the different things Paul covers. And if you read this letter, if you've read it before, you know this church in Corinth is messed up. They have a lot of issues. And yet you and I, and we as a people, are tempted with all the same things. Now, the specific names of what tempts us and the context we're in is different. But the principles are the same and the temptations are the same. So while we're not gonna cover the entire letter in two weeks, I hope just the little of it that we do study makes you wanna read it on your own. And of all the sins and all the temptations that Paul addresses first in this church is the issue of disunity. It's the issue of disunity. See, in Corinth, they had these divisions, these factions that were beginning to develop based on which leader they associated with the most. And Paul is hearing about this and he's saying, this is not in step with the unified people God has called us to be. Because every church, everywhere, is constantly tempted to have disunity and division. Constantly tempted that way. And especially in our day and age. 
In our day and age, we are constantly pulled to take polarized stances on almost everything. We are constantly pulled to take a polarized position. And so the more polarized you become as a people, the more difficult it is to find unity with those you disagree. The more everyone goes towards extremes, the more difficult it is to have unity in the church. And what happens in this day and age, to be in the middle on anything is to be demonized by the extremes for your cowardice and for your stupidity. Now, there are all sorts of reasons how, why we got here, our political climate, social media, the constant flood of information, a 24-hour news cycle, the need to stand out in the midst of all of that, and on and on we could go. But regardless of how we got here, all of us feel this tug towards polarity. It makes it really tough for unity. And a great example, albeit silly example, of this was a couple of years ago online, was a picture of a dress that was posted. You guys remember this? Some people saw blue and black, other people saw white and gold. And there's a lot of disagreement. Let me show you a picture of it right now. Okay, raise your hand if you see blue and black. Okay, put them down. Raise your hand if you see white and gold. How, how? That's a blue and black dress, if that is. So here's what happens. So this is a great example. You see this, and your first response to someone who sees something different than you is, how do you not see what I see? And then depending on your personality type, you might say, what is wrong with you, right? Like that might be the next thing that you say. You can take that down and we'll stare at the entire time. Now I use that as an example to say, isn't that how almost every issue right now in our culture feels? You either see blue and black or you see white and gold and anybody who could say, I kinda see both, liar. Like that's what it feels like. That's what it feels like. Every single topic, every issue turns into where there's no sympathy, no even agreement with the other side because to do so would be to lie or need their approval or something. And everything kind of goes to our separate corners and what begins to happen on every topic is you hear someone else's explanation or who they think should have this office or who they think, what policy or what they think on this topic or how they think this should be handled and when it's different from you, what is our first response? How do you not see what I see? And then if, depending on the next step in that argument is, what is wrong with you? That's what happens. And it's happening in the world but what's happening is infiltrating the church. And what I'm worried about is that we are dividing along the same lines that the world does. We're saying, this is what I'm for and you're not for that. What common ground could we really have? Now, what God is gonna teach us today is that of all the things that we have to value as a church, unity, unity must be as important as anything else. Not more important and not less important, but as important as everything else we are called to value and called to believe as a people. So let's read this text, 1 Corinthians 1.10, and before we read it, let me give you just a little context so you have some, kind of orient yourself around what's going on in this letter. Corinth is a very influential city at this point in time in the Mediterranean world. And Paul is the one, he had led all these people to Christ, he's the one who established this local church. And so this letter of his is actually him writing into a, a response to a letter he received from Corinth. 
Because remember, these are new Christians, they don't have a New Testament, right? It's being written at the time. So if you have questions, you have to write a letter to an apostle and go, I don't know what to do on these topics. So they write him a letter, Paul writes this back to them in response to their letter, and in that, he also addresses some things he's heard about them. So a lot of you'll see in 1 Corinthians, he'll say, in, he'll say regarding marriage, was because they asked him a question about marriage. Well, in this first part of 1 Corinthians, he brings up something that they didn't bring up, but that he heard about them. And the very first thing he brings up is the growing division and factions among them. Look at 1 Corinthians 1, verse 10. He says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? So Paul has heard they are arguing and even separating from one another based off their allegiance to various Christian leaders. Now they probably had their different allegiances based on which leader impacted them more, which leader they thought was a better speaker, which leader they thought was funnier or more intelligent, and they're beginning to polarize, they're beginning to go to their camps. Some said Paul, others said Apollos, others said Cephas, Cephas is another name for the apostle Peter, and even others said Jesus. Now, it feels like that's the right camp, doesn't it? Isn't Jesus always the right answer in Christianity? But actually here, it's not. We're gonna get into that here in a little bit. But Paul's instruction is to them, his command, his plea, is that they agree and they champion unity. He says, be of the same mind, the same judgment on these matters because the way the church loves one another, the way the church is united together directly reflects who we believe Jesus to be. So let's dig more into this text to understand what's going on. Here's the first thing. Before Paul gives any instruction about unity, I want to remind us and go to the text and say he begins to the church with statements of identity. He begins with remember how God has given you grace already. Remember what God has already done in your life. This is the pattern of Paul in the New Testament. It's the pattern of God in your life and mine and throughout the Bible is before he commands you to obey, he gives you grace and love. What you do flows from who you are, not the other way around. You are not who you are based on what you do. God makes you his son or daughter, and then he gives you commands in line with your new nature. Corinth is a dysfunctional mess, and yet listen to how Paul talks about them, even in the midst of their dysfunction. 1 Corinthians 1-2, he says, to the church of God that is in Corinth, he says, to those sanctified. Sanctified means to be set apart for a holy use or purpose. He says, though you may not be living this way, you've been set apart for holiness, for God's own purposes. He says, in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together. 
You don't attain sainthood status. You're given it in Christ. Verse four through nine. He says, I give thanks to my God always for you. Even though you're struggling, I still thank God for you because of the grace of God that was already given you in Christ. I know you feel like failures. I know you're concerned about a lot of things. Remember, God's already given you grace. Verse five, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. Verse seven, so that you are not lacking in any gift. God has been nothing but bountiful in his gifts to you. You're not lacking anything. Verse eight, this Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end. Even when you're wayward, he will sustain you. Guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse nine, God is faithful. By whom, once again, you were called, past tense, into the fellowship of his son. Before he gives any instruction to you, any instruction to me, any instruction to us, he says, remember who you are first. Even when you're wayward, you're still a saint. Even when you're sinning, you're sanctified. Remember who you are. God sought you. God called you. God gave you a new name. God's gonna make you guiltless in the day of Christ Jesus. He's gonna sustain you. He's called you to know him, into fellowship with him. Before you obey, remember who you are. Remember what God has done. So in light of that, now you have, okay, this is who I am. This is the identity of these people, no matter how they behave. And now look at verse 10 again with some fresh eyes and say, okay, now here comes the command of how sons and daughters should behave in God's church. He says, I appeal to you, once again, brothers, sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? So here's the first thing I want you to notice about the divisions happening in this church. They are not dividing over evil things, but good things. Important you, know, you notice that. They're not dividing over evil things. They're not separating over disagreements on something that's sin or not sin. But they're separating over faithful teachers of God's word. Good gifts to them as a people, it's the good things they're separating over. Think about Paul. Paul is an authoritative messenger from God. He's the one that led them to Christ. It's a good gift to them. Apollos is an eloquent preacher at this point in time. He's only spoken highly of in this letter and throughout the New Testament. There's the Apostle Peter, also someone they should listen to, someone who's a teacher of God's word. And then there's Jesus. He's pretty good. So all the things that they're dividing over are not even neutral things, good things. And that's what's causing division. And Paul is saying there shouldn't be division even over good things. So for this immediate context, his point is the church, our primary allegiance should never be to any particular preacher or teacher of God's word. Never. It's never to any particular messenger. It's always to God himself in what his word says. It shouldn't matter how funny or intelligent or the way they dress or if they remind you of you, that shouldn't matter. It should be, are they teaching the word of God? That's it. 
Is that what God said in the text? That it should be listened to and it should be obeyed. But that person shouldn't be worshiped. It shouldn't be exalted. It shouldn't be the way you separate from other people. And with the first three names on this list, that's pretty obvious, right? Paul, Apollos, Peter are all ordinary men and ordinary people like us. They have sin and they have brokenness and they have weakness. They have a unique role God gave to them in the church. They're called to be preachers to God's people, to the world. They had a unique role, but they're still humans like everybody else. So of course they shouldn't be exalted. Of course they shouldn't be worshiped. Of course they shouldn't separate the church. But then there's the camp of I follow Christ, which feels like Paul would be saying, see, they get it. And I'm sure that camp thought, oh, we for sure get it. We're using Jesus. And Paul is critiquing them, and they're in the same list as the others. So what does he mean? Because clearly God, so you know, God wants you to follow Jesus. So what does Paul mean? What was happening in the Corinthian church is that while there were, other people were siding with different leaders, some people were saying their allegiance was solely to Jesus and not to its, his church or the leaders of that church. They're dividing and saying, I don't have to associate with the church. I don't have to be a part of it. I don't have to submit to anybody. All I need in my life is Jesus. It's very similar to modern day when people say, I love Jesus, but I hate the church. Or I love Jesus, but I don't need the church. Even in the first century, people were using a Jesus juke on people. It still happened then. They're using his name to justify separating from his people, and what Paul is saying, he's saying that if you use Christ's name to separate from his church, that's contradictory in nature. That's the point he's making. Jesus had said, if you're going to follow me, you have to love my people the way I love my people. John 13, 34, this is Jesus speaking. He said, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, talking about the church, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. How? If you have love for one another. So to not love the church and associate with her and commit to her and serve her in all the ways Jesus did is to not follow Jesus. I think we would all agree that if you love someone, you listen to them. That's a pretty simple test of love. If you love somebody, you listen to their words and their words affect you. That's what love is, really simply. Well, to say, I follow Christ, but I don't listen to his words is to not love Jesus the way that you think. And so the I follow Christ camp, just like the other ones, they were all using different Christian faithful leaders who teach God's word to justify division, to justify separating from one another, to quarrel and to argue. Now listen, I didn't choose this text, honestly, because I think we're a church in danger of honoring the teachers of God's word over his word. I really don't think that is a massive blind spot for us. I'm not saying it never could be or hasn't been. I'm just saying right now for our, I can speak for every church, but for our church, I really don't believe this is a massive issue because of the unique grace God's given us I think the uniqueness of having a plurality of leaders and preachers, and we don't advertise who's preaching, we just, whoever's up here is gonna preach the text, that's what we guarantee, we're not gonna tell you who it is because we don't want to be around any one person, we want to be around the word of God. 
And I think not only have we done that as leaders, but you as people who are part of this church have faithfully said, yeah, it doesn't matter who it is. Now maybe you may say, I really like so-and-so and so-and-so, whatever you may say in yourselves, Still, I don't think that's what we're dividing over. I haven't heard anybody say, I'm sorry, it's not what Halim said. Like, I haven't heard that yet. But I don't think that's where we're gonna go. Now, on top of this, if that wasn't enough, I think the last, I don't know, five to 10 years, the way God has disciplined all these high-profile Christian leaders and they've fallen away from ministry, I think it's been good chastening for the entire American church to say, be careful who you exalt. Be careful where your allegiance is because these people who can be your heroes, they only get less impressive the more you get to know them. Anytime I meet anyone who's heard me preach and they say something that's too glowing in my mind, which is almost anything, my my tagline is always, I only get less impressive the more you get to know me. Because it's true, because on a Sunday, you're getting the best version of us, right? I've been studying for this all week, prayed up, ready to go. That's not how I am tomorrow morning, right? Because they're just people. God may use me, may use other people, but they're just people. And I don't think that's where we're struggling right now as a church. Now, where I do believe we are much more, as a people, susceptible towards divisions and fractions is not over allegiance to good leaders, but I think it's over allegiance to good causes. I don't think we'll quarrel over a lack of care or concern. If we hear someone have lack of care or concern for someone, some teacher in our church, I don't know there'll be a fight. But I do think, and I have heard, the quarreling that happens when there is lack of perceived lack of care and concern for a particular biblical cause that is near and dear to me that you don't seem to care about. That's where I see the potential of us dividing and us not having unity. And listen, not causes that are evil or even causes that are neutral, but causes that God himself in his word tells us we must care about. Very good things that we have to do as a church. So whether it's causes like pro-life from womb to tomb, whether it's racial reconciliation, whether it's care for the orphan or the widow or the poor or unreached people groups or refugees or evangelism or marriage or parenting or work or whatever else God has told us to do in his word. All of these aren't just good again. They're commanded by God for us to do. But what happens because we live in a world of polarity, it seeps into our church and we begin to side with a certain biblical cause near and dear to our hearts. And we begin to look at other Christians who aren't as vocal or committed or passionate about what we are, and deep in our mind we begin to think something's probably wrong with them. And I'm not saying everyone in here who's zealous for a cause is there. I'm just saying that's the temptation. The temptation right now is to give favoritism and approval and warmth towards those who are part of your cause and those who may disagree with the way you're doing it or those who may just be quiet about it, get less of your approval and less of your love and less of your warmth. One of the most challenging things for me to do in this church because of our size, and this is harder for a pastor generally, is to help us as a people, how do we navigate and care about everything we're supposed to? 
I'm not sure if you've read the Bible cover to cover, but if you do, you'll see that God has given the church quite a mantle of issues that we have to care about. Jesus is our king. He decides what we care about, and he has a lot of things he's given to us. And so since there are so many different things, not all of them can be talked about or emphasized in the same way all the time. And it can be difficult to help someone who is passionate about a particular biblical thing they should be passionate about and help them see as much as I share in their enthusiasm and commitment to that, I'm not going to preach on it or we're not going to announce it. We're not gonna highlight it in the way that they are wanting, and it's not because we don't care or I don't care, but it's one of many issues we have to consider as a people moving forward. And there's a variety of ways to accomplish any given thing. So a couple of years ago, when I first became a pastor, one of the first kind of conflicts too strong, but kind of a tense moment, there was an older godly man, great leader in our church, he gave me some good, encouragement and wisdom about my role as a pastor. So he was wanting me and wanting us to highlight a particular cause. I'm not gonna tell you what it is, but something we have to care about as a church. We have to, okay? Really important, and he wanted it to manifest itself in a particular way. And so while I agreed with him on the cause itself, I agreed with him what the Bible had said about it, I told him we weren't gonna be able to do it in the way that he wanted. Now he was Godly in his response, he asked some really good questions as to why and helped me understand why this isn't gonna happen the way that I want. And I explained it to him and he was, once again, godly to receive my explanation and understanding how complex the situation was. So it was, there were some, you know, some tense moments, but it was good. But right before we got off the phone, he gave me this great line that it stuck with me because it stung a little, but it's proven to be true. He said, Tyler, one, he's like, I want you to know, I don't envy your job. He's like, part of, this is part of what the difficult role uh, you have as a pastor. He said, because you're going to let a lot of people down. I said, thank you? Like, that's, I appreciate that? I didn't know, I was like, okay, is that the most passive aggressive thing I've ever heard? Like, I'm trying to understand what that was. And he said, no, Tara, what I mean, he's very self-aware, he said, what I mean He's like, you have me, this guy, and he's saying, I have this particular thing that I know God's called me to and I have to be a part of and I love this church and you're gonna have to explain to me why this is one of many things we have to care about, not the only thing we're gonna care about and it's gonna be difficult for you to do. And he's absolutely right. That's my job and the elder's job is to make sure that we as a people somehow navigate together and stay together as a people as we follow all that God has told us to do in his word. His wisdom has proven true. I'm sure I've let many of you down. But let me say this once again about our, I can't speak for every church, our church. For the most part, it has been an encouraging thing to talk to people in this church who are zealous about any particular biblical cause. Because for the most part, the majority of men and women in this church who are passionate about this particular thing happening have been patient and charitable with us. Most of you have not left as soon as you didn't get the things your way. Most of you have not left as soon as this didn't happen the ways you were dreaming of and you were happy to have conversations, happy to actually do it a different way and happy to fight for unity in the midst of it. And I'm so, so thankful for that. But the temptation, you have to know, will always be to sacrifice unity for the sake of your cause. Because that's how the world sees it. 
The world has no value necessarily for us having unity. And so in the church, you can come in kind of guns blazing and think, no, we have to do it this way, and yet unity in some way is going to have to temper us. And we can't just say, and what Paul's plea is, you should never, if you're going to have some division, if you're gonna have some divide, if you're gonna separate in some sense, it should never be done so easily or briskly or cavalierly. It shouldn't be done that way. That's why he pleads them. What does he say in verse 10? I appeal to you, notice how he references family, brothers, sisters. I'm appealing to you. By who? By the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's, I'm appealing to the highest authority in this church. No elder, no leader, Jesus himself. By his name I'm appealing to you that what? That all of you agree, not just leaders, the people, all of you agree that there be no divisions among you. What do you mean no divisions? He says, but that you be united, and he this phrase, in the same mind, same judgment. I have been wrestling all week with that phrase. Paul, what do you mean, same mind, same judgment? Because commentators alike will say it's not abundantly clear in the context what he's after right there. That, that, that word same mind literally has the meaning of say the same thing about. So when you read it, it feels like at first, Paul, do you mean total uniformity? Is the unity you're after in this church in Austin, Texas, total uniformity? Because if so, we're like, it's gonna be tough. No, I don't think that's what he has in mind. Because of other teachings in this letter, just a good way to interpret the Bible, you take tough texts and you interpret them with other texts. So other texts in the scriptures help me understand that Paul talks a lot about the diversity in the body. In other letters he's written, and in this same letter, he talks about the various ministries we've been given. So Romans 14, a really important chapter, talks about the individual Christian conscience. That there's this thing called you have a conscience, and that there are times that your conscience is going to be sensitive to something that mine is not. And Paul says, that's okay. You shouldn't condemn each other. There's gonna be gray areas in the Christian life where your conscience is gonna side one way and mine another, and that is okay. 1 Corinthians 12, in this letter, he's gonna talk about there's so many different spiritual gifts and yet one spirit. And so based on the gift that God gives to you and the gifts God gives to you, you're gonna have a different ministry and a different calling and a different emphasis in your life. And then later on in chapter 11, in this very same letter where he says, no divisions among you, Later on he says, and sometimes healthy conflict and some healthy divisions can be good because they reveal those who have genuine faith among you. So what does he mean, same mind, same judgment? Here's what I think he means. I think he means when it comes to our allegiance to good things in the word of God, I think we, need to, we must have as a people the same mind about the centrality of Jesus and his cross and the same judgment about the value of unity in the church. We have to have the same mind about the centrality of Jesus. All the teachers that Paul listed off in that list, all should be listened to. Every teacher mentioned, Paul, Apollos, Cephas, Jesus, should all be listened to and followed in a sense. And every cause that I have mentioned so far, and even the ones I haven't, 
If God's word says we should do it, we have to do it. These are good things we have to do. But what Paul's gonna do the rest of this chapter, he's gonna talk about the power of our salvation and the centrality of our salvation and the centrality of the church is the crucified and risen Jesus. So he's saying, not everybody's going to share your passion and your commitment to that particular cause God has called you to. And that's okay. And that's okay. We may not have the same mind necessarily about everything, but when it comes to Jesus and his cross and his resurrection, we have to have the same mind. The one thing we all have to rally around is who he is. And so what we can't do, church, is very easy to do, is you begin to measure someone's maturity or their standing as a Christian based on whether or not they support your cause. It's very easy to say, well, I don't see them speaking out or doing anything about this. They're probably not even a believer. Or they're probably really immature. Or they're probably stuck in sin. Now, those can be helpful things to measure yourself by, but the way you measure other Christians fundamentally is how do they view the death of Jesus? Is it for their sins? How do they see the resurrection? Is it for their victory? Do they love and they adore Jesus? That's what we rally around. That's what we have the same mind. Now, does true belief in Jesus produce action for the sake of others in the world? Absolutely. But in this day and age, it's important that we distinguish the foundation from the house. The house is really important, but there is no house without the foundations. We have to distinguish between the two. Now, if you hear all that about Jesus must be central, and your first thought is, that's right. All we need is the gospel. All we need is Jesus. Don't talk about anything else. Then you've misunderstood me. You've misunderstood me, and you're probably in that I follow Christ camp. See, as, as central as the gospel of Jesus must be to our church, it must be the blazing center of this church. It's the gospel that functions as the heat and the light that calls us to other people. It's the gospel that purifies us. It's the fire that purifies us and fuels us to love people in this church, to serve them and commit to them even when we disagree with them to go to those on the margins and on the fringes and those who don't have much and those who don't believe what we believe. Why? Because that's what Jesus did to you. The gospel is how he came out after you and you were a pain and you were a nuisance and you had nothing to give and you had nothing to offer and yet he sought you out. So to believe in that gospel and stay stationary is contradictory. The gospel always fuels us towards his church and towards his mission. Jesus did it to us, we do likewise to others. Not one person is gonna be able to do all that God's called us to. One thing to, to take into consideration, God wrote his word to the church, not to individuals, to the church. So we together have to bear the weight, but not all of us will bear the weight of every single thing in exactly the same way. So we have the same mind about the centrality of Jesus and how that gives us wisdom and clarity in our callings. And then secondly, same judgment about unity. In the church, unity must be one of our highest values. It must be one of our highest values. Now, listen, unity 
does not negate other values we have like justice and truth and mission. It doesn't negate them, it should inform them. The way you understand justice should be informed by, well, as a church, we need to seek for unity as well. Unity is not the absence of conflict either. Sometimes to get really good unity, you know this, you have to have a really hard conversation. What I've found is the reason so many of our friendships and relationships wane and we don't have the same unity we used to, because you won't have that hard conversation you know you have to. You keep putting off being honest about how you were hurt by that person or frustrated by that person, and you don't wanna be vulnerable, so you just keep moving on, thing will take care of itself, and the truth is, time doesn't cure all wounds. It hardens a lot of them. Unity will require you to say tough things when you think someone's in error. You think that thing they said was actually more hurtful and you seek to listen and understand where they're coming from. So let me give you two really practical ways to think about unity. So for those of you in this room who I love, you are zealous for a cause, you are a leader, you are a go-getter, you wanna sacrifice, you wanna commit to this particular thing, you know God's called you to, that's fantastic. Unity, unity will require you to slow down so others can come along with you. Unity will require you to slow down, not, not, not stop, but slow down so other people can join you. This has been the correction for me as one of the pastors of this church. The way that I'm wired is I see, like, that's where we need to go. Let's get there, let's go no matter what it costs and I've had to learn, but this person doesn't see what I see or they don't feel what I feel. They've never even thought about this topic before. And so when they hear it the first time, I gotta remember, well, how did I hear it when I heard it the first time? Oh, it took me some time to learn. So unity will always require some of us to slow down and say, and be patient, because someone was patient with you. Someone was kind to you and said, oh, I know you don't get it, I'll hang around and talk to you about it. Yeah, I'm not gonna go off with just one conversation and then give up on you, I'm gonna slow down, because I want unity. But the other side, it's unity will require some of you to speed up. Unity will require you not to drag your spiritually apathetic feet and keep everyone else from their zealous good works because you don't know what you wanna do yet. I can't tell you the number of times we've had missional communities, which are small groups that meet outside of Sundays. Let's give it, I'll give you an example. I have 15 people in the group. And they're having a conversation like, what should our mission be? Like, what neighborhood, what workplace, what school do we wanna support? What group of people? Maybe there's, there's people who are under-resourced in this city and we, we wanna be about their flourishing. Whatever the mission is, all right? And then 13 of the 15 will say, man, we gotta do this. All in agreement. But then those two people are like, hey, I'm not really feeling called to that. So can we just kind of pump the brakes? Unity, like, like that sort of thing. And so what happens because you're Christians, you're like, okay, let's, okay, totally get that. What's your problem? Like, what, 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 how can we help? I'm like, I don't know, I just, just, let's just pray about it. Okay, you're like, okay, also tough, because how do we determine that, right? And unity will mean some of us who you don't know what you want to do yet, you kind of lack conviction right now, it'll mean you speeding up and saying, I don't want to hold us back, I'll serve there too. I'll let my heart catch up to what we're doing and after I serve for a while, I may realize it's not for me, but I'm not gonna keep all of us back. I'm gonna keep this church back and just saying, I'm gonna casually attend and not really do anything and not really help. Unity will require some of us to speed up. 
slow down, speed up, you see the dance that this is? How do you know when to do which one? Following Jesus is more of an art than a science. It's an art. You know what to do, you know the color palette, you know this is right and this is wrong, but when they blend together, how do you have that? It's conversations, it's patience, it's love, it's trust, it's talking to other people. But we have to wade into this. This is a corporate thing we're a part of, not just me, not just you, all of us. And so if you're casually attending and you have no intent on being committed, you're affecting the sense of unity. A non-answer is an answer. And we all have to wade into this, why? Because our unity reflects who we think Jesus is. Last line and we're done. Look at Paul's closing line about this. The way he closes this little section on unity, he says, is Christ divided? Your divisions make it look like Jesus is divided. The ways you are breaking along, quote unquote, party lines, the ways you're breaking along and all the ways the world does, you're saying Jesus is no different than the world. Father, Son, and Spirit are no different than any other deity. They break along divisions and lines. You're saying he's not one. What a mantle we've been given that the way we interact reflects who Jesus is. He says, was Paul crucified for you? No leader and no cause died for you. Not in the way Jesus did. No leader, no cause died for your sins and paid your debt and brought you back to God. He says, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? He's saying, who gave you your name as son and daughter of God? It was Jesus. You were baptized in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You're baptized in his name. And as God is one, so are we. Of all the things Jesus could have prayed for, his very last prayer in John 17, of all the things he could have prayed for, he prayed for all who would believe through the apostles preaching and teaching, all of us, that we would be one as the Father, Son, and Spirit are one. We all have to wade in because of the name that we bear. See, we're all called to show the world what Jesus is like. We're all called, we need to show this city, how does Jesus love us? Guess what? Jesus loved us so much that he slowed down so we could stay with him. Think about his ministry. Think about he has the most important path to Jerusalem in the history of the world, and he is stopping, especially in the Gospel of Mark, at least two separate times to help settle a debate among his 20-year-old disciples, who's the greatest? He's on a pretty important mission. If anyone would have said, can you guys be quiet, I'm the greatest, and move on, don't worry about it? He says, all right, let's stop, let's have a conversation about it. Jesus loves us enough even when it slows him down, even when it costs. And yet, how does Jesus slow down for us? Does he acquiesce and give in to all of our desires? No. He slows down to call us to more mission and more holiness and more justice and more truth. But how does he do it in love and grace and mercy? The people around you in this room right now, not theories, the people around you, they are not expendable. They are not expendable. 
they are in Christ, that's a man or woman Jesus died for. If they are in Christ, that is your brother, that is your sister. Long after you are done fighting for your cause, guess who's gonna be in heaven with you? They will be with you long after you're unable to fight for the cause anymore. They are not expendable, and yet neither are the biblical mandates God's given us to care for people. So we have to be a people who wade in by the word of God, by his spirit, by his power, to find the way where we don't sacrifice one for the other. That we look at one another and say, the mission of God and the people of God are non-negotiable. We trust him to give us wisdom to walk together in those as he leads us forward. and He shows us just how one he is and we reflect that in our love for each other. Let's pray together. Father, right now specifically, before we move, before our minds drift, would you bring anyone to mind who's a Christian or in this church who we have a hard heart towards right now? Anyone that we've written off, anyone that we may not have said it out loud, but secretly we've thought how little we care for them, how annoying they may feel to us. Got people we've tried to have a conversation with and we felt like we were shut down. I felt like they didn't respond well. God, even now, would you begin to melt our heart towards them and make us realize that's someone you died for? And God, even now, maybe you're bringing to mind ways we have failed brothers and sisters and we've said things we shouldn't. We've taken stances on things as if they were as important as your cross and your resurrection, Jesus. And we need to apologize. God, even now, give us the faith today to make a phone call and say, I'm sorry for the way that I acted. I may disagree with you, but that was harsh. That was mean-spirited. God, help this be something all of us own. That we'd we'd show the world your kingdom, what it's like, and how there can be unity in the midst of disagreement, unity in the midst of diversity. that we would prize unity as highly as we prize anything else. That we'd be slow to anger, quick to listen, gentle in correction, effusive in encouragement, and that you would show off your love, God, in the ways that we love people who disagree. Because we know that's my brother, that's my sister. And in this family, God, in this family that you lead, Unity is one of our highest goals. So make us that kind of people so that when those who don't believe come in among us, they can see these people agree, disagreed on so much and yet they have this common binding faith that transcends every barrier, and every race, and every culture. God, help us be that. Pray all these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.